Good morning, Family Church. Thank you for joining us this morning as we start a new series. It's going to be a five-week-long series. And this morning, we're going to be covering the Old Testament. The next week is going to be the Gospels. And then we're going to look at the book of Acts, a transitional book that talks about the new birth of the church. Then we're going to look at the book or all the books of the epistles. And then the last week of this five-week series, we're going to look at end times. And we're going to be in the book of Revelation. And so... Thank you for being here this morning. We're going to uh, walk through, run through, fly through, have a crash course in the Old Testament this morning. My goal is not so much to teach everything in the Old Testament. We want to be out uh, at a reasonable time. But I'm going to hit a couple of themes, a couple of main points in the Old Testament. For those of you who are a little weird and you were excited about me going through every single Old Testament book and story, I have provided a copy of a summary of every Old Testament book in your bulletin. And so, you can keep this in your Bible. You have a couple of a few sentences on every Old Testament book. My prayer this morning is that we become more equipped as a church and as Christians how to read the Old Testament. Many times it seems like we have a couple of stories that we know from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, but we don't really understand how all of those things fit together as a whole. Picture putting a puzzle together. When you're putting a puzzle together, you always start with the corners and the edges, right? Well, this is what the series is for, is for us to have some boundaries and parameters of how we read God's Word and how they can be applied to our lives. So I want to jump right in this morning, and I want us to develop a love for the Old Testament. The first point that I want to touch base on is one reason why we should love the Old Testament. It's this. The Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus. It was the Bible of Paul, and it was the Bible of the disciples. God had not yet used these men and Jesus Christ to give us the New Testament through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what these men had and what Jesus had was just the Old Testament. And there's a couple of passages that I want us to look at. The first one is, I'll look at how the disciples viewed the Old Testament. It's in John chapter 1 verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one whom Moses wrote about in the law. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. So he said, We found the one he wrote about. And about whom the prophets also wrote. The prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Then we go to Paul in Acts 18. It says this, For Paul powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating... Listen to what he demonstrated. Demonstrating by the Scriptures. That would have been the Old Testament. Paul demonstrating by the Old Testament that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. Can be convicting, can it? Can we do this with our Old Testament? Can we take the Old Testament and see these things in the Old Testament with with our eyes? Acts 28, again with Paul, verse 23. When they had appointed a day for Paul... They came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said. Some became believers of Jesus Christ. Then we come to Jesus. After his resurrection, he's walking on the road with a couple of disciples. 
And he begins to share with them from the Old Testament. Luke chapter 24 verse 27. Listen to what it says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How amazing it would have been to be there walking with Jesus, hearing him teach from the Old Testament. Everything concerning himself. That would be a conversation that I would love to be in. Verse 44 of that same chapter. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Old Testament is broken up into three major portions. And Jesus just showed all of those things in this conversation. And in verse 45, he said this, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That is my prayer for us this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we pray that you open our minds to understand the scriptures. Specifically this morning, the Old Testament scriptures. What they were given for. How we can read them today. How they can be practical in our life as believers. God, equip us as a church. Help us to have a love for the Old Testament. God, we thank you for the work you've done in us and the work you are doing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the Old Testament is the foundation God has given us. We need to see the Old Testament not as, here's here's the Old Testament and here's the New Testament, two books. What we really need to see is these are two parts of the same book, right? And a lot of times you can just have a New Testament And you carry around a New Testament. But we need to understand you only have half the book. If you have a New Testament you're carrying around. That's just part of it. If you start a book and you start reading it. You start at the beginning. And you work your way through it. And the beginning gives you the backlog. And the character. And the development. And the storyline. And then as you get more towards the end of the book. You start to develop other things. Which is the New Testament. So the Old Testament is this foundation. The more we understand the Old Testament the more we will understand the revelations God has given us in the New Testament. Before we jump right into Genesis chapter 1, there's a couple of tips and hints and illustrations I want to give us that will help us in our time this morning. The first tip is this. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. What I mean by that is the elements we find in the New Testament are the same elements that were concealed first in the Old Testament. But they didn't know about all of them yet. They were glimpses. They were hidden in the Old Testament. And we're going to see that throughout our time this morning. Here's an illustration to help convey this first tip. Reading the Old Testament is like looking down a mountain range. So, have a picture here. I want us to imagine we're in this village right here. We're Old Testament people. We're prophets. We're people living in the time of the Old Testament. We're in this village. And there's some things God has given us glimpses of. There's promises he's given for way in the future. Well, we're here in this village. And we see all these mountain ranges. And and it's hard to tell when they start, when they stop, how far away they are. But we can tell, here's a peak. And here's a peak. And here's a top of a mountain. And here's a top. 
but we can't necessarily tell how far away they are or how far away they are from one another. And this is what it would have been like. They would have been looking at some of these promises, but they don't have the specifics. They just see a general overview. And if we look at this picture from the side, this is what it would look like. Here we have Old Testament prophets and people. They would have been looking at some promises. The cross of Jesus Christ. A coming Messiah. They would have seen that in the future. Here. So from this point backwards is Old Testament. From this point forward is New Testament. So we actually right now are somewhere in this church age. Just as they were looking for the coming Messiah, we are looking to a coming kingdom, a future kingdom, the end times. So we're going to get in that into week five. But the same way we have some of these promises looking forward, they had some of these promises looking to the future. So I hope that's helpful this morning. The next is the Old Testament, and this was given by pastor and theologian B.B. Warfield. He gave us his next tip. The Old Testament is like looking into a chamber, richly furnished, but dimly lit. He says this, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lit. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what was in it, but was only dimly or even not perceived at all. The mystery of the Trinity, for instance, is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation, and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation that follows it, the New Testament, but is only perfected, extended, and enlarged. For instance, in this picture, you see a couple of glimpses of what you think may be something. But you're not really sure because it's dimly lit. You're not sure if there's a character in the room, like a Messiah. But but you can see certain portions. With the introduction of light coming to the New Testament, we now can see all the trappings of the room. Well, this is what it would have been like for Old Testament. And as you read the Old Testament, since we have the New Testament, we have the light, the illumination of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament Scriptures that when we read something in the Old Testament, we see, hey, that was foreshadowing something in the New Testament. So as we jump in this morning, these two illustrations, and that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, are going to be largely helpful to us. I want to thank Pastor Mark Dever for his many sermons and writings uh, in this series. They've helped in the crafting of my message this morning. And my message is going to be divided into three main points. Three main themes, a particular history, a passion for holiness, and a promise of hope. So let's go ahead and begin. We're going to jump in Genesis chapter 1. So grab your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 1. We see the book of Genesis open up with the history of the world. History of mankind. Everybody starts here in Genesis. God created everything out of nothing. And as we begin looking through the Old Testament, and in fact through the whole Bible, there is a common theme I want to draw our attention to. This theme is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Can you say that with me, church? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. 
This theme we're going to see throughout the whole Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament. In fact, when you look at the Bible as a whole, it is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So let's look Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see the creation of the world, mankind, perfectly created in a perfect relationship with God. We've seen creation so far. Then in chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve enter into sin. This perfect relationship was now destroyed. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Go ahead and turn there. Genesis 3, verses 6 through 7. The introduction of sin into the world goes like this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they saw that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Adam and Eve sinned by disobeying the one command that that God had given them. They now experienced... What we've all experienced before, guilt and shame. When there's sin, what comes next is guilt and shame. And they had this. That's why they they tried to cover themselves. They had guilt. But in verse 20 and 21, right, right after the fall, we see God's character displayed in verses 20 and 21. Now on the surface, these two verses may not mean much, but they show God's grace and love and patience towards us and towards mankind. Look in verse 20. We see she is given the name Eve. Well, what does that mean? Well, this name Eve is is close to the Hebrew word life giver. Life giver. Well, if she is to give life, that means God has shown her patience and mercy. She just sinned. He could have started over, right? But instead, she's given the name Eve, which means she has a future. And a future as a mother. And that people are going to be coming from her. Are going to be born to her. And then verse 21. Listen to what it says. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is one of those items that were in the room dim, but we couldn't necessarily see what it was. One of those mountain peaks that people would have been perceiving in the Old Testament. This meant an animal was killed on their behalf in order to provide a covering for their sin. They had shame. They had guilt. And an animal was killed on their behalf to make a covering to cover up their shame and their guilt. Adam and Eve, up to this point, they had never witnessed death before. They had never seen anything like this. Maybe you can remember the first time where an animal was killed, and and you remember it as a child, or you remember the first time you understood what death was, or you saw an animal have to be put down, or hit by a car. I mean, maybe it's, it's imprinted into your mind that horrible circumstance. This is what it would have been like for Adam and Eve. They had never experienced death before, and now they see that because of their sin, something that was innocent was put to death and made as a covering over their sin. Now we've seen creation, we've seen fall, but God has given them a covering. This is redemption, redemption. 
Remember I mentioned the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed? This is one of those mountain ranges, one of those objects in the dimly lit room. First, it showed the instituting of the sacrificial system that God was going to give them in the Old Testament. But more importantly than this, we know the story in the New Testament that this was a foreshadowing of the eventual sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That an innocent party on our behalf was going to be killed to provide atonement for our sins. God, in Genesis chapter 3, right after sin, gave them an example of something that was going to yet come in the future. And the Old Testament is full of these items. So this completes our theme of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. As we continue picking up speed, we're going to quickly breeze through the next few chapters, stopping just long enough to see this four-theme pattern. In Genesis, or Genesis chapter 4, Go ahead and turn there, just one page over, Genesis chapter 4. We see the birth of Cain and Abel, right? Brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain does what to Abel? Kills him, right? So Cain kills Abel. We had creation, now we have fall, okay? And then we're moving on. Cain deserves death, but is instead given redemption. And then later is given restoration. In the next few chapters, we see... That those on the earth are multiplying. Creation. Right? But then we read that those on the earth, mankind is exceedingly sinful. And then we see the fall. We see the flood. Judge the whole earth. But some are saved on the ark. Noah and his family. What follows next is redemption, restoration. So remember church, as you read through the Bible and as you read through the Old Testament, remember creation, fall, redemption, restoration restoration. Because it's with this theme that God shows us his character. This is the backdrop. For instance, you're looking at me, you see, you see this black backdrop. It doesn't really provide very much for me, but this theme of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, this provides the backdrop for God to demonstrate who he is to us. For instance, if there was not creation, we would not understand the power of God. The creativity of God. If there was not a fall, could we ever experience the mercy of God? Could we ever experience the patientness, God's patience? If we didn't fall, well, if we continue to sin, we now can experience his patience towards us. So this theme really provides the perfect setting throughout the whole Bible for us to understand the character of God in these four themes. So many people ask the question, and maybe you have, I know I have, why does God in the Old Testament seem so different than God in the New Testament? Have you heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard something like that in the world today. They're like, isn't God in the Old Testament the God who kills people and they get stoned for disobeying their parents, and this guy tried to catch this thing and was killed for it, and all these different things? It's almost like God in the Old Testament is different than God in the New Well, I want to tell you, church, if you read carefully the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll find that God is exactly the same in both. His love is demonstrated in both. His compassion demonstrated in both. His justice is demonstrated in both. I would actually go to say that God revealed in the New Testament is intensified. We see God's love intensified in the New Testament. We also see God's wrath intensified 
in the New Testament. God's anger towards sin intensified in the New Testament. Here in the Old Testament, you're right. We see death. We see people put to death for certain sins. There's physical death. But what type of death is there in the New Testament, church? Spiritual death. Spiritual death is much worse than physical death. And so Jesus talks of spiritual death. There's hell mentioned in the New Testament, not in the Old. So as we move through, we see God's attributes intensified, not diminished in any way, but intensified as we move to the Old or as we move to the New Testament. So we're going to move to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to go through Genesis chapter 12. Some of you might be thinking at this time, how are we possibly going to get where we need to go? It's already been so long. We're only in Genesis chapter 12. I just want to encourage you, we've already progressed through about 1,700 years of history, all right, in this short amount of time. Uh, I have a longevity chart that I want to show us here. What God has given us in the Bible is really quite incredible. In all the books of history, the Bible is really the only one that God has given us or that anybody's given us that shows actually the history and the dates and the timelines. You see, the Bible gives when people were born, how long they lived, at what age they gave birth to a son, and who was reigning as a governor at that time. So what is behind me, I know it's a little hard to read, is a longevity chart that you can take the genealogies, you know those things we normally skip because we don't want to read through and we have some conviction over that. Here's a chart that you can just look at. This is from Adam, okay, starting with Adam at creation year zero. And this goes all the way to 2,400 years of history. And then here's Joseph down here. You can take when they were born, when they gave birth to their son, and when they died, compile this list. And this is the genealogy from Adam to Joseph and his sons. This is 2,400 years we can recount about when the flood happened at about the year 1656. Because we know when Jesus was born, and we have genealogies from Jesus all the way back to Adam. So it's quite incredible that God has given us these things. So we actually know pretty close to when even creation began. So I just want to encourage us where we're going and the specifics God has given us in the Bible. This moves to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, first point, a particular history. The Old Testament is a particular history. In Genesis chapter 12, we see God in the Old Testament go from everybody in the mankind down to one individual. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 12, verse 1. says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God chose for himself a people. He chose one individual It doesn't say why. It just says God chose this person and gave some promises to Abram. As the song goes, Abraham had many sons, right? For those of you who know the song, 
And many sons had father Abraham. And what's the next line? And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right hand. I see some hands waving here in the back. Good job, church. So why is that important? Have you ever thought about what that means, singing that song? I am one of them. I, I, don't, I don't have a Jewish history. I'm not Jewish. But I'm singing a song of Abraham who was saying, I'm one of his sons. Well, what does that mean as I read the Old Testament? Well, we see in Galatians 3.28 in the New Testament, it teaches this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For all are one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So according to God's promise, I and you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, am an offspring of the promise God gave to Abraham. This means that when you read the Old Testament, it's not their history, but your history. Right? Now, that should matter to us because we tend to care about things that are personal. I used to look at the Old Testament as, that's their history. I can read that to learn about their history. The New Testament is about my history. But if we understand this correctly, this is actually our history as well. So I just want to encourage us. We see that Abraham gives birth to Isaac and then to Jacob, then to Joseph. This leads us to Exodus, right? By the way, I just want to throw out the most current movies, the recent movies of Noah and Exodus are both horrible movies, okay? About the only thing they have biblically accurate is they named Moses, Moses, and Noah, Noah. And there was a boat, right? And they didn't even get the parting of the sea right. So I just want to share that. Don't get your biblical theology from those movies. It's not good. So we see in Exodus 6, verse 7, God is speaking to Moses, and he says this, I will take, listen, listen to this language God says to these people. He's not asking them, he's telling them, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Basically, God is saying, I will do these things, I promise, because I am. And I'm faithful to the promise I said. So God is showing them he is a powerful, trustworthy God. This leads us to our second major theme. Soon, Israel finds himself at Mount Sinai. And this leads us to point number two. The Old Testament should teach us a passion for holiness. A passion for holiness. By this time, God has delivered the nation of Israel up out of Egypt. And it's here at the foot of Mount Sinai where God is literally going to lay down the law with his people. James Hamilton states it this way. Yahweh, the Old Testament name for God, has delivered them up from Egypt, but the terms of the relationship have not yet been set. God comes as one that is known but unknown, imposing and unpredictable, and the awestruck Israelites are undone by his overwhelming glory. The people are just along for the ride where God is taking them. They're instructed to wash and consecrate themselves 
for their meeting with God, which was going to take place in three days. They would meet the God who rescued them. Exodus 19.7 So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set them before them all the words that God had commanded them. All the rules and regulations they shared with the people. And the people said this, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Now, church, do you really believe you can keep every single one of the commands God has given? Yet they said, hey, everything you've said we will do. What other choice, I want you to think, did they have? Right? God just led them. He just did these plagues on Egypt. Led them through an ocean, big bodies of water. The Egyptians behind them are killed by this water. And now they're out in the middle of nowhere with God. Of course, they said, we're going we're gonna to do whatever you want us to do. And so they agreed. God was revealing his standard of perfection with his people. The same standard he has for us. That we have to live and be perfect in order to have this right relationship with him. And so that is the Old Testament teaching. This is not the, what he's given us today, but it's a foreshadowing of that. So these people, they're trying to learn how to live with a holy God. They're in the wilderness with a holy God. And he's showing them, this is what it takes for you to live beside me. The nation was learning a passion for the holiness of God. With that in mind, I want to briefly break away from this broad view. And I want to specifically look at the tabernacle. This is what God commanded them to build. It it was a tent on the move that they could break down. And construct again. And where God would dwell amongst his people. And he had given them hundreds upon hundreds of explicit instructions and commands. Exactly how this was supposed to be built. And they followed the instructions to the T. God was showing them that if anything sinful came into contact with him. Death was always the result. Not because God is angry. Or not because God didn't get his way. It's just because of his holiness. And so he's teaching them, anything unholy that comes into my presence will be killed. It will be put to death by the sheer presence of me. In the book, The Faith of Israel, the author says this about the camp. The camp of Israel is built on the idea that there are degrees of holiness surrounding God. The closer one gets to God, the more sacred the space becomes. And so we'll see this. In the picture of the camp. We see God dwell in the holy of holies. This is where God would literally dwell amongst his people. Now only the high priest one time a year could go into the holy of holies to atone for the people's sins. Atonement means to take one warring party and another and bring them to peace. And so you have this nation that is sinful and broken. And God who is perfect and he's going to sacrifice And bring them to peace. So you have the Holy of Holies. And then the next holiest place after that is the holy place. Where only the priest could go. In front of the holy place you have Moses and Aaron and his family. And they literally camped at the entrance. Now they weren't trying to be security guards. Trying to keep people from getting in there. They were trying to protect everybody else from wandering in there unintentionally and dying. They were bodyguards to protect the people from the outside to happen to get in. So then you have the Levites 
They were the ones to take care of a lot of these uh, duties that were supposed to be done. And then you have one way in and one way out. There's multiple ways to sin in the Old Testament. They've given us all these ways in Leviticus and Exodus. Here's how you can sin, and here's how you can sin, and here's how you can sin. But there's one way how you can be made clean. And then you have the 12 tribes that camp around the left, the right, the north, and the south, camping around those sides. And everything else outside of this camp would have been the unclean, the realm of the dead. So the closer you get to God, the holier the ground becomes. And this is what the people would have been thinking. How can we, same question we need to be asking ourselves today, how can we, such a sinful people, dwell with the holy living God in the midst of us? How can we live this way with God here and survive? I mean, they're thinking it's only a matter of time before I mess up and I die because of my uncleanness, because of my sin. But God doesn't leave them there. Just like he didn't leave Adam and Eve, this leads us to our last point, a promise of hope. A promise of hope. Remember that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. By this time, God had given multiple glimpses of a promised hope to come. In the book of Leviticus, God gave, provided a way for their sins to be covered, just as he once did for Adam and Eve. The provision that he made for the nation of Israel was similar to the one he made for Adam and Eve, and that was sacrifice. It was the only way that things could have been done. The people were called to sacrifice a perfect animal, clean of any defect or blemish. Mark Dever says it this way, Can you see what God was teaching the people? First, God was teaching about His holiness and His passion for holiness. Second, God was teaching that sin is a serious, deathly business. Third, God was teaching that atonement could be accomplished when an innocent one dies in the place of the guilty. The people understood that sin against God was serious. So serious that every time they sinned, it brought death. Either their own death or the death of another party to make atonement with God. They also understood that sacrifice of an animal wasn't sufficient payment to be blameless before God. Just as Adam and Eve knew that. They knew, Adam and Eve knew after they sinned, that they had a temporary covering. It didn't hide their shame and guilt on the inside. They knew about it still. You can sweep it under the rug, but you know it's still there, right? I mean, if you're at home and you've been given the chore to sweep it under the rug, and you sweep it under the rug, and your parents are walking all over the rug, but they don't see it, you know it's still there, and you can have guilt over it. This is how it was through the whole Old Testament. They had guilt, and they understood that it was just a temporary situation or solution to a problem that they had. And they knew this. And we know this. In Hebrews 10, 4, it says this, It is impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sins. It was impossible. These cannot do it. It was a temporary covering. The Old Testament people, and as you read through, they knew there was one way for their sins to be covered. And that one way pointed to a coming Messiah in the future. 
Not just they would have their sins covered, but they would have their sins completely removed. What we've seen so far, I want to show how this, how this practically applies to our life now. As we read the New Testament, how this Old Testament understanding really applies. John 10.9 says this, I am the gate. This is Jesus speaking. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Remember in the tabernacle picture, there was one way in to be clean, right? One way. Multiple ways out to be unclean. So you went in, you got clean through sacrifice, you went back out into the world, and what happens? You're dirty again. You go in again, there's a sacrifice, now you're made clean. You go back out into the world, you're dirty again. Well, Jesus is saying, I am the gate. If you enter in through me, you will be saved. And then he says this, they will come in and go out and find pasture. So through Jesus Christ, when you've trusted in Jesus Christ, it's both a coming in and going out and you're clean, set free forever. It's not just a temporary cover of sin. John 1.14 says this, The Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This Word is tabernacled. The same in the Old Testament, that God was going to come and dwell with His people. So now we see that Jesus Christ came and tabernacled among us. And then what does it say? We have seen His glory. In the Old Testament, those at Mount Sinai, they said, we don't want to see God's glory because if we see His glory, we will die. We will surely die. We don't want to see God's glory. Don't show Him to us. We'll do whatever you want us to do. Well, now in the New Testament, because Jesus Christ says, we have seen His glory. The glory of the one, the only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see how the Old Testament sheds so much light into the New Testament and it gives depth to the New Testament verses? Here's another one. What does it mean that God is with us right now? We've seen His glory. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Before... Remember, only the high priest could go in one time a year. And then after that, the priest, and then Moses and Aaron, and then the Levites, and then the rest of the people were around the camp. And they didn't have immediate access to God because of their uncleanliness. But now, you trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Your sin is not just covered, it's cleaned completely. Now, God, saying His Holy Spirit can dwell in us We are now the temple where He dwells. Before, the people couldn't even come close to God, but now, through the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice that we see in the New Testament, we can now have access to God. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Church, the Old Testament system The rules, the regulations, they all pointed to our failure to be able to follow the rules. And they all pointed to Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice that was to come in the New Testament. I want us to see that those in the Old Testament, they were saved the same way how we receive salvation today. Well, how is that? By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how they received 
Now, they had a sacrificial system. They didn't know the name of Jesus Christ. They looked forward to a coming Messiah. They understood what they were doing was temporary. But they trusted that God was going to provide a coming Messiah that was going to take care of this sin once and for all. Not just sweep it under the rug, but take care of it. Clean it. Make it white as snow. So they looked forward in the future to a coming Messiah. Similarly to the same way how we today look where? Backwards. We look back at what Christ has done on the cross. That he was the perfect sacrifice. So they looked forward by grace through faith. Their faith in the coming Messiah. We looked back by grace through faith in the Messiah that God has given. So both of these testaments point perfectly to the person of Jesus Christ. I want to share, why is the Old Testament church so long? Why is it so long? I mean, if you ever sat down and start reading and try to make it through the Old Testament, it's so tedious. It's so long. It's so full of sins. I mean, you read the people's sins, the ups and the downs, and it recounts everything. I mean, there's things in there that I'm thinking, when I go to read this as a family, am I going to want to read this part? If you've ever read through there, there's some, there's some pretty detail-oriented things. Why does God give us all of that? Well, the New Testament shares with us why in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Church, remember, promises given to Abraham and his offspring. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're an offspring of Abraham, spiritually speaking. The Lord is not slow to fulfill the promises He gave, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is why the Old Testament is so long. You see a God who's putting up with sinful people time after time and showing mercy, and He's always keeping the perfection. He's always saying, this is what it takes to dwell with me, but He's always providing a way of atonement. And that way that we have today is through faith in Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. I want to encourage you, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, read the Old Testament. Grow a love for the Old Testament by what God has given you in this foundational book. If you're not, you're not sure if you have a relationship with God, this is all new stuff to you. I encourage you. I would love to meet with you. Maybe you can find somebody else to meet with you who you know is a believer. But trust in Jesus Christ for what he's done. Listen, you know in the depths of your heart that you have failed the commands God has given you. Just as I have. But God sent Jesus Christ to take the wrath of God that you deserved and that I deserved. And he died on a cross in our place. So when we believe that, we trust in him. It says we become children of God. And he takes our sin. And he doesn't sweep it under the rug. He dealt with it completely at the cross. Church, we serve an incredible, mighty, patient God. May we love the Old Testament. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for being so patient with us. God, we thank you. We have 
a record that you have given us of the Old Testament, how you patiently endured with people who time and time again turned their back on you. They got angry at you, yet you had patience and love with them. God, it is so similar in my own life. You have patience and mercy with me. So many times, even though I've experienced your love and grace and forgiveness, I often can turn my back and have my own thoughts and do my own things. But God, I thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit that draws me back to you. God, I thank you that I can have salvation, that I can have assurance knowing that I am yours. God, I pray that you grow our love for the Old Testament. God, I pray you grow my love for the Old Testament. God, may we read it as your word of God, because that is what it is. God, I thank you for this morning. May you speak to hearts. May you teach us all the things that we need to learn and know. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.